This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT podcast. I am Jo Preston and I am a geriatrician at St George's in South London. And I'm Jackie Lelks and I'm a senior lecturer in social work at the University of Brighton. And faculty who are not here but helped with this podcast today are Tracy CK, who's one of the occupational therapists on our faculty. And today we're going to be talking about homelessness in older adults. By the end of this episode, we hope that you can have a better understanding of the legal framework for helping homeless older adults and understand some of the reasons why an older adult might be homeless and appreciate some of the impact that that might have on their health. We want you to be able to recognise those who are at risk of homelessness and be able to signpost them to specific services that might be able to help them and to appreciate the complexities associated with homeless older adults. But first, social media. Okay, so I found an article on Twitter which is about care care ministers calling for care homes to get online after research shows that thousands of residents have no access to Wi-Fi whatsoever. So it says that um, the minister is urging every care home to install Wi-Fi after a survey by carehomes.co.uk, the leading review site for care homes, found a fifth of care workers say their care homes have no access to Wi-Fi. And interestingly, in 2016, the United Nations defined internet access as a human right. Did they? Who knew? I didn't know that. Didn't know. I just, um, so we're recording this in August and I just did the junior doctor induction and I put up that slide and it's quite common of Maslow's hierarchy of needs with Wi-Fi at the bottom. Yes. So maybe it's actually... uh, (laughs) It's coming through. It's It's working its way down. (laughs) So they they did a survey of 2,800 and three care home owners, managers and care workers and said that 16% of staff didn't even know if there was any Wi-Fi in their care home. So the article was on Twitter. Um, And then it goes on, obviously, to talk about the importance of access to care homes and um, says that it's pretty mixed with 18% saying Wi-Fi is only available in communal areas and just 45% saying access is available in both bedrooms and communal areas. Mm. So no, even any privacy when you want to go on to um, whatever it is you're looking at on site or or talking to people. And 2% said that uh, Wi-Fi was only in the bedroom. That's a really nice thing. Yeah, I think and as the population ages and the characteristics of those people age, that's going to be even yeah. more important. This assumption so it's a isn't a good there. thing to start thinking yeah. about. So, should we start with a definition? Yes. Of um, of homelessness. So there are formal definitions. Uh, so by law, you are homeless if you have no available accommodation, mm-hmm. or if the accommod- or if you do have accommodation but it is not reasonable for you to live in that accommodation anymore. So Shelter have quite a lot of information around homelessness. It's uh, quite a good website. It's a charity in the UK if you're listening outside the UK. Absolutely. Um, and on their website, they uh, they identify several situations in which a person could be legally defined as homeless. So they have no accommodation to live in, and that can also be not just in the UK. It could also be that they've got nowhere to live in another country as well, so they don't have any accommodation anywhere. Um, or they have no legal right to occupy uh, the accommodation that they uh, are in. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be split households and uh, availability of accommodation for the whole household. 
So I've certainly come across situations where, um, say, an older person has moved in with their children um, and then they feel that they can't continue to provide that care for them any longer and then they ask them to leave. But they may have already sold or, or given up any accommodation yeah. that they had before to do that. Yeah. So those sorts of situations as well where more than one generation, I suppose, are living in yeah. one property. And then whose right that is depending on who actually owns the property. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that can become quite complicated if the older person has made a contribution maybe to building mm. on yeah. some form of annex onto the accommodation yeah. but then didn't have any legal documents drawn up to say that they had made some contribution. Mm. Which would be quite common in a lot of families. Absolutely. Yeah. Um if it's unreasonable to continue to occupy the accommodation that you're that the person is residing in, um, or whether they if they are subject to violence from any other person and therefore have to leave that property, um, or the application is unable to secure entry. So, I suppose if a landlord had boarded up a door and you couldn't get back mm-hmm. into the property that you had been living in. Um, or the applicant lives in a movable structure but has no place to put it. And I think later on you might be talking a little bit about travelling community and that mm. might be an example there. So the local authority will have some duty towards people who are homeless and that can range from advice to interim accommodation. Um, the Housing Act of 1977, or the Homeless Persons Act, still underpins the responsibility of local authorities to assess people who are presenting as homeless against five main criteria. So one is, are they homeless or likely to be made homeless in the next 56 days, which is very specific. Yes. I assume that's a two months at 28 days or eight <laughs> yes. weeks. And that's only just been extended recently. There's an, another act later on that extended that. It was originally 28 days. Oh, really? Yeah. It's not very long at all, yeah, is it? No. Two, are they eligible for assistance in England? So we are talking about the English legal framework predominantly in this episode. Three, are they in priority need? Four, are they intentionally homeless? And in that situation, support does not need to be provided. And five, do they have a local connection? If not, which local authority should they be referred to? So... Touching on that last point a little bit more about are they intentionally homeless, the local authority can say you made yourself intentionally homeless if you were homeless because of something that you deliberately did or failed to do, so a deliberate act of omission. However, an act or omission is generally not considered deliberate if it was a result of a limited mental capacity or a temporary lapse in capacity caused by mental illness, frailty or assessed substance misuse problem. The local authority has reason to believe that the person is incapable of managing their affairs, for example, because of their age or capacity. Or did the person act with imprudence or lack of foresight, but in good faith? Absolutely. And it's really key that that issue about not deliberately, I suppose, leaving a property, even if you consider that property to be unsuitable, because then you make yourself intentionally homeless Mm -hmm. and then there is potentially limited support available to you. So sometimes it may be that it's you have to advise the person to remain where they are while the housing situation is looked into for them. So in these circumstances, um, so if the person is homeless, in those circumstances, the local authority does have a duty towards uh, individuals as well as the housing as well, but also in terms of carrying out an assessment of that person's situation and their circumstances and also looking at their needs. So you'd be looking at um, potentially a care act assessment there for an older person to see what their circumstances are and what their needs are. Um, 
and then there is a duty on the for the local authority to to draw up a plan of action so how can we resolve this situation for this person so um, within the law they call that relieving Mm -hmm. so what can be done to try and prevent this person from becoming homeless Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously what we'd want to do for anybody but um, particularly for older people is to try and keep them um, in accommodation living somewhere so the plan of action is likely to set out certain steps that you would be working with that person and asking them to take these various steps Mm -hmm. Um, and if they fail to take the required steps that are within the plan that you've hopefully done and we've talked about it quite a lot haven't we this sort of Mm person-centered approach and the importance of working with them and seeing agreeing what this plan should look like Mm -hmm. Um, and so hopefully then they're able to take those steps but if they don't take the steps if they fail to take them the local authority can then say that they have deliberately and unreasonably refused to cooperate with them Um, And obviously that means that they're less likely then to provide some form of assistance for them Um, and take reasonable steps. But if they carry on, then obviously if they take reasonable steps, you could help for around 56 days um, and they may help maybe for a longer or a shorter period of time. But they can then look if they take the steps and they can look then to provide the support for them. So the duty um, will only apply if the person has previous um, will not apply. Sorry. So the local authority don't have any duty to to do an assessment with somebody if they've previously declined suitable accommodation. I am sure you've come up against that situation where somebody's already been offered accommodation and they decline it. Mm-hmm. So if they've already done that, or they're deliberately not cooperating with uh, with people around trying to maintain them, so it has to homed. be something that's worked together, not yes. provided for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's quite a hidden issue, I think. Um, homelessness, particularly amongst um, older people. Yeah. Um, and I think, it, and lots of the stuff that certainly I was reading was saying that it's actually quite difficult to try and figure out the numbers. Yeah, to actually find those people. Yeah. yeah. So hidden's quite a good term yeah. for that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The most visible are people that you see rough sleeping out, and they, um, they've they done studies and surveys of those, particularly in London, going around because you can see them. Yeah. Or see most of them. You may not find all of them. Um, you'll know about the people that you're providing the statutory homeless support to. Yeah. Um, so the people that are receiving local authority support already. Um, but it's the people who are in hostels that are the most difficult group to mm. identify and find. Because mm. they're quite a transient group quite yeah. often. Um, or maybe in a hostel that isn't a, a homeless hostel in inverted commas. So it's difficult to, to know. Mm. And you still you do also get older people who are uh, sofa surfing as well. And that's quite, even for any age, that's quite yeah. a difficult group of people to find. Yeah. So what we're talking about here is older adults that are homeless. And that's kind of a, a smaller proportion of this already hidden group. Yeah. So it, it it is quite an understudied area, really, to, to really understand what's going on. Yeah. We tried to look into how many homeless older adults there are. We found that a group called CHAIN, so Combined Homelessness and Information Network, surveyed rough sleepers in London in 2015-2016 and found that 11% were over 55, but that was double that of previous surveys that have been done, so it seems to be increasing. And about 4% of statutory homeless households were uh, provided for people who were over the age of 60.
In 2018, Shelter did a survey and found that the number of over 60s was 2,500 compared to 1,170 in 2009-2010. So we can see in both of those increasing numbers. And as always, to go back to that United Nations definition of over over 55 and, and older yeah. persons. <laughs> <laughs> so that, but the patterns of homelessness vary widely between countries and over time. Um, and so Crane and War, uh, Warns in 2006, they had a look in, at the situation in the United Kingdom in the um, early half of the 20th century. And they found older people aged over 50 uh, predom- predominated in the homeless populations. So, uh, so actually, it was more. It's become less, and now it's becoming more, more again. again. So it's change that pattern changes yeah. all the time. So there's quite a big impact on health and well-being from being homeless. Um, the health and mortality of someone who is homeless um, is comparable with someone who is ten years older, mm. who is not homeless. Mm. So if you're um, if you're sixty, well, so I suppose you'll be have the similarity to a seventy-year-old. So yeah, what they've also found is that comorbidity amongst the longer-term homeless population is really common. And the average age of death of a homeless person is forty-seven. Um, it's lower for women at forty-three compared to seventy-seven in the general population. And people who experience homelessness can struggle to access quality health and social care mm. as a consequence. Um, So this population that they were looking at um, includes those who have been homeless for many years and those who have become homeless for the first time later in life. And as with other populations, official statistics are likely to represent just the tip of the iceberg of what what is actually out there. So this relationship between homelessness, health and and well-being in later life isn't actually particularly well documented in the same way as it's documented for younger people. Yeah, so lots of the documents that you look at have got a lot about younger people yes. and then very little. They're quite open about the fact there isn't very much there isn't there very much in comparison suppose, yeah, at all. And I suppose it's yeah, how do you compare a younger population with an uh, with yeah. an older pet population yeah. as well? Um, and a three nations study identified that physical and mental health problems, alcohol abuse and gambling problems were contributory factors uh, in homelessness being experienced for the first time by people in later life, Mm -hmm. uh, which is quite interesting. Um, And following on from also another factor that sort of contributes is is the death of a close relative Mm -hmm. or your partner um, or relationship breakdowns um, and also changes in their accommodation status Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So accommodation being sold or it needs uh, to be extensively repaired Um, or rent arrears and I certainly know I was interested in just travelling up today and and coming through London you see people I've seen quite a few people who are with boards saying why they're homeless and people saying my relationship's broken down I've lost my home etc on those boards which is sort of representing that what's happening Yeah. yeah yeah There's a high level of poor mental health recorded in the older homeless population and a study that was done in America put that at about 78% of that population. Mm. I was just going to say, I think the reason for putting in like um, studies from America is a sort of that it's possible to make some comparisons mm. between the American population and British, the UK population, isn't it? Um, Studies are also showing that existing health conditions are exacerbated by being homeless Um, and that older adults experiencing homeless are far more likely to suffer from depression or dementia, which would 
fit with some of the reasons that someone might become homeless that we've talked about, not being able to manage your finances, relationship breakdowns, that kind of thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, and like you were saying earlier, obviously if somebody's diagnosed as lacking capacity, it, you can do something. Yeah. But obviously, there we has know to be people on that cusp as well, yeah. isn't there? Of changes over as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I was thinking as we were writing this as well that my experience of this is quite small, and I think that's probably in part because of um, a lot of my background has been in hospital medicine, and so we're kind of seeing this skewed example. So I have quite seen quite a lot of um, younger adults homeless. Um, and the plan usually then is you discharge them to the town hall and they go to the town hall and they, you know, seek help from the local authority. Um, but with older adults who are in hospital and you're at the stage where we're involved and we're planning discharge, actually usually it's that their mental health or their physical health is such that they meet the requirements for care need mm. anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't tend to be. So there's quite a small group, I think, in the hospital population where you're actually in that middle. Yeah. And it's likely potentially then that if there was a social work assessment, you might potentially be looking at is there the possibility of a sort of sheltered housing yeah. or is there the poss- or actually have they deteriorated to the extent yeah. where uh, residential care, yeah. nursing home care would be the best option at yes. this moment in time. So actually a lot, of, a lot of what we're talking about here is the more preventative, recognising it early and doing something about it before we hit that point because, yeah, once someone is unwell enough to be in hospital, usually... They're on that that end of things, aren't they? Where they're going to end up needing long term care anyway. Be interesting, wouldn't it, to see if any anybody had experience in A and E? Yes. And the number of people coming into A and E services, and whether or not that's still quite a young population, yeah. or do people working in that A and E environment see a number of older people coming in? Yeah. There was also a study by. Uh, Rogals and Burks that demonstrated that a large majority of older people experience homelessness <laughs> in inner cities of high-income countries showed impairment on tests of frontal lobe function, um, a finding that could have significant implications for any medical or psychosocial intervention. Yeah, and again might explain some of the reasons why they've ended up in that situation, problems with planning, sequencing yeah. and relationships. Yeah. You could see why that would be there. So next, we want to talk about a bit about well, what can you do about that? What can you do about um, someone's health if they're homeless? And I think one of the big things that came to my mind was um, how do people access that reliably? If they're going to clinic appointments and things like that, we rely quite heavily on being able to send letters, um, engaging with GPs and that kind of thing. And we know that they're quite a minority um, disengaged group. So I came across a website through um, John Rochford, who is the GP that's joined our faculty recently. Um, a colleague of his gave us a website called Fair Health, which is a really useful website, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and they talk through what should happen for, for healthcare access for um, not just older adults, but anyone that's homeless or another minority group, so um, the travelling community and migrants as well. So they're talking about um, particularly general practice. How do they find GP surgeries? It would be likely that they would Google or they'll hear from somebody else, word of mouth, find somewhere. And when they register, they're more likely to call up the surgery or just turn up at the surgery and want to register in that way. And 
they really stress the importance that every contact, particularly at this early stage, is really important in, in how people are likely to engage and their expectations and experience of what they will expect to happen next. It's really important at that point that the reception staff, whoever it is that's meeting this person, um, engages them and doesn't distance them Otherwise too much. Otherwise they're likely to just disappear and not return. And you may never see them again. Um, they also run through a few myths that I thought would be quite mm. useful for us to go through. So one is that people need ID to register. And they don't. Everyone living in England has the right to a GP consultation that is free of charge. Uh, myth number two is that they need proof of address to register. They don't. Um, if they can't or they won't, um, then GP surgeries should um, look to see whether they can register them to another address that could be able to receive medical correspondence. So that might be the surgery itself. It might be a local community centre. It might be a church or a religious group that they're a part of. Myth number three is that you should ask questions about their immigration status and their response on the website is absolutely not, this is irrelevant. Um, while people can be charged for hospital care, they won't be charged for GP okay. care. And fourth is that patients have to complete the GMS1 supplementary questions, which I think is the form that you use to register at GP surgery. And they're quite emphatic here, they say no, no, thrice no. <laughs> um, it does have some questions on the back about immigration status, but they are not expected to complete that if they don't want to. So I think those are quite useful things to yeah, know. Absolutely, and I think you know things around things like immigration might come into play for the local authority. So it's good that you know, in the sense that that they can get medical support. Um, those things might be looked at if you yeah. were to have an assessment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so now we're going to hear from um, a GP surgery in Thamesmead, which is in South East London, who do quite a bit of work with their local homeless and travelling communities to try and engage them in healthcare. So I'm here with a couple of GPs from Thamesmead who have got quite a good service for homeless older adults in their area. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, so I'm Laura Hindley. I'm a GP partner at Lakeside Medical Practice. And I'm Annie Milstein, also a GP partner at Lakeside. So what challenges were you facing um, to prompt you to set up the service the way that you run it? I think that we're just, um, we've always been uh, proactive surgery and always, uh, if we've recognised that there was a need, we would then look at how we could fill the hole that, that was there and look at what services we could provide. Uh, yeah, and I think a lot of our patients are very, um, have very challenging lifestyles, they're very chaotic. Um, we've certainly had a fair number of homeless patients um, over the years and in the past and currently and it's a challenge to help them to access healthcare resources and social resources often. What's your local demographic like? So the local demographic is um, very interesting with um, uh, significant ethnic minority numbers, um, people who don't have English as a first language and it's always been like that. So. You know, for decades we've actually uh, looked at those challenges and risen to meet them mm. where we can. Um, and I think because of that, we haven't necessarily we've stuck to the rules, but we've been able to um, really push the, the the boundary as far as we can in terms of being able to to meet the needs. And you've got quite a high proportion of homeless and traveller community. Uh, we have um, a proportion of them. We have people who are temporarily homeless. Um, people who may, for example, I've, I've had a patient living in their car mm -hmm. that we recognised, um, but actually it wasn't 
um, it, it took a few consultations before that was um, acknowledged and, and discovered. So at that point, we could then find out what, what else that person needed. So what do you do as a surgery to address those challenges? Um, well, I think one of the biggest things uh, that we've done as part of the part of the um, helping with this is is we've got a patient liaison officer who's been introduced, um, and she's really a key sort of focal point for helping patients. So she's uh, linked them. Um, she is a means uh, to help us as GPs to follow up on more challenging patients. So we don't have the time to follow up on every DNA at the hospital, but um, she can help us with that. She can contact patients, arrange for them to come into the surgery. And she has uh, links to other resources, such as social prescribing. Within all that, she would recognise that for patients who are homeless, um, we will use the surgery as an address Mm -hmm. um, to facilitate uh, referrals and communication. Um, We also uh, let um, them charge their phones in the surgery, we will give them um, toast and make them a sandwich. Um, we will. We also have um, access to um, clean bedding. We've got some supplies and um, clean clothing. And um, I think just you know being aware of their increased vulnerability will mean that she will be active in communicating with them about whatever's going on, and then alerting us if there are particular issues that need our input. You said you've got some in-house services as well, so when it's difficult for people to go somewhere else for a referral, that you can do quite a bit within the surgery. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, setup that we've got at Lakeside, uh, because a lot of the really important services for sort of more vulnerable patients, they can access directly from us, um, and are there at the practice, and that includes mental health services. We have a MIND team that come to the surgery uh, and patients can actually walk in, they don't even need a referral to speak to mind. Uh, we also have the drug and alcohol services who are now linked to the practice and our patient liaison officer can tee patients up to meet up with them so they don't have to travel, which I think is a big big help to them. And I think because she is such a key person and will um, uh, you know, make the relationship with the patient then if if necessary she would offer herself to sit in on the consultation if people want that so that they've got a familiar face there mm-hmm. um, and she links into as Laura said with the social prescribing this uh, charity organization that we work with and they have a presence in the surgery every day uh, our patient liaison officer is also trained to to manage referrals to them and they link to debt advice housing um, citizens' advice, all those sorts of services, um, and we are a very high user of interpreting services mm-hmm. locally. So we're very used to having interpreters there as well to facilitate consultations if needed. Yeah, I think the um, the team that help with our social prescribing uh, services are, are really, really, really important to us. Um, even simple things like filling out complicated forms and complicated paperwork can be really challenging for some of our patients and they will sit with them and help with this, which um, makes a huge difference often. Great, thank you very much. I think the other, from a sort of social care perspective, I suppose, or from, not no, I think from a well-being yeah. perspective, actually, or sort of a non-health sort of personal well-being, mm-hmm. um, older people often ascribe much more significance to their home mm maybe than other groups of people or other ages. Um, 
they can spend longer in it. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I've certainly really seen that. Isn't it? You yeah. know, when it, the, your mobility is declining and you're confined to your home, it takes yeah, on a huge... spiral the, where your world shrinks yeah, down, yeah. isn't it? And actually, if you can get into the garden, it's like, that's fantastic. I'm, just, I'm happy to just go to the end of the garden yeah. as opposed to other things. Um, often people, home can be near to family um, or friends and that gives them their support network around them so as they're declining in their abilities there's people there that can help them um, and it can hold more memories for people both positive and negative as well um, and Peterson and, and Parcel they found that 70% of older homeless individuals have had at some point a conventional history of living in a home um, I suppose a home in the sense of four walls because mm. it could be a mobile home as you've already uh, t- uh, sort of alluded to with the travelling community. Do you think just come back to um, not making any assumptions about how long someone's been homeless for? There are people, there are people who have been homeless a long time, there are people who are newly homeless um, and, and understanding their history. Yeah, and I think as people, you know, it's that one around you, the people, groups of friends dying around them is yeah. quite significant isn't it as well yeah. and what happens then and yeah. for people so um greenier and et al they did some research that focused on experience of the intersection of aging and homelessness and they looked at uh, social relationships mm-hmm. and the challenge of living on the streets and in shelters in later life um, and also in the future. And the article outlines five main themes that capture the experiences of homelessness. Um, and they said that it was age exasperated their worries mm-hmm. for them. Um, they felt excluded and isolated or more excluded and isolated. Um, and they, they, they struggled with uh, cha- sort of managing those significant changes mm-hmm. that have happened. And I suppose on top of losing your home, for an older person, their abilities, both physical and mental, can be declining like as well. and adapting, yeah, yeah. To all of those things. And that can, just be, that can be difficult when you've got a house, let alone when you don't have a house, yeah. can't it? Um, they have a shifting needs and, and a shifting reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the the other important thing is thinking about their sort of hopes and strengths and, and resilience. So I suppose looking at that strength-based practice, that person-centred practice, and how do we work with this person yeah. to support them. I think sometimes what can also be interesting, I certainly from my experience, is that actually for, I've certainly met older people who are homeless, that actually when you... Um, offer them accommodation they've lived on the streets for so long they find that quite difficult that's quite a frightening prospect I don't know if you've come across people yeah I have actually Um, as an SHO when I was working in London I think I saw a bit less of this when I was working on the south coast Um, but yeah that that we would say well this is what we can offer you Um, and some of them saying well no I, I want to be in this area I've I've got connections to the homeless community in this area I don't have no interest in being away from that because that's their social network at that point. Yeah, and, their, and their support networks. And it's quite frightening. It, yeah. So it, t- it takes time and talking, doesn't it? And, and like say, establishing what is it that this person and wants. And building trust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so other, are you, other problems faced by this group? Um, we've talked about gaining access to healthcare um, and social services and to the benefits of that breed, although that that obviously maybe getting access to health isn't as yeah. difficult as I'd certainly thought it might have been before you myth-busted. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, 
um, this group are going to have particular needs in respect of their safety and security, both on the streets and in hospitals, where they may be subject to bullying by younger homeless people. Mm. I think another concern sometimes is prescribed medications and can be quite a risk if people on the streets know that you have that and it's a drug that can have some value. Um, living on Older people living on the streets or in home shelters, they are unable to modify their homes. So again, if somebody's mobility is declining, you haven't got the same ability, have you, to go in and to put a ramp to in or to put rails in or whatever and they're yeah. high risk of falls, yeah. potentially. You're going to have extremely limited access to toileting facilities, um, which can complicate attempts to, to manage continents and improve that for people. Um, and corrective lenses and hearing aids for sensory impairments may not be affordable or um, might be easily lost or damaged in this population as well. So research by um, Alden in 2017 found that some practitioners adopted what they called an age-blind approach when assessing older people, um, despite this being contrary to policy guidance on assessing vulnerability in in England. Um, Further services and housing options aimed at older people were reviewed as inadequate due to a mixture of lack of awareness or targeting and resources. And, it, and this research concluded that assessment of vulnerable, vulnerability based on old age is complex. I think we've talked about that quite a lot. Um, as whilst gerontologi- gerontological uh, discourse may discourage viewing age as a number, homelessness scholars stress that ruthlessness causes poor health conditions consistent with premature ageing. It is therefore asserted that policy must um, focus greater attention to developing suitable provision for older older service users and not to incorporate a rich conceptualisation of older age and that might then have an impact upon homelessness amongst this group and their experiences of homelessness as well. Um, Research in America found that approximately 40% of homeless adults reported difficulty with at least one or more activities of daily living. A third reported having fallen in the last six months. Roughly a quarter had cognitive impairment, 45% had visual impairment and 48% had urinary incontinence. So there are some preventative measures that people could consider. So if you're aware that somebody's in rent arrears, that could be a sign of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and that could come up in assessment either by health or social care, couldn't it? Um, If people, um, you might... Um, certainly from a social care perspective be thinking about looking at their benefits and referring on to an appropriate agency that could support them to are they have, are they getting all of the benefits that they're entitled to yeah. and uh, and again that can be highlighted by um, at any point really um, it could be that if people are having financial difficulties if we can give them support mm-hmm. and again using the voluntary sector to look at giving them support to manage their money and, and, and look at those financial difficulties. Um, assessing vulnerability in primary healthcare settings, which would lead into the bit around GPs, yeah. uh, etc. Um, and obviously, as we've talked about various other times, the importance of collaboration really and highlighting this vulnerable group of people yeah. and thinking about how we could work with them. There was a Homeless Reduction Act that came in in 2018, which has been the biggest change to the rights of homeless people. Um, And it effectively bolts two new duties to the original duties that we outlined at the beginning in terms of assessing people. Um, And so there's a duty to prevent homelessness um, and a duty to relieve homelessness as well. 
It's quite a nice way to think about it, isn't yes. it? And that's what I quite like about shelter is that they um, do quite a lot of the preventative work around homelessness as well. So the Act requires local authorities to provide free services to give people um, in their area information and advice on preventing homelessness, mm -hmm. securing accommodation if they become homeless, um, information about their rights um, who are homeless or threatened with homelessness, mm -hmm. and any help uh, that is available for people who are homeless or likely to become homeless as well as information about how to access that help. So there's this real drive to be much more open yeah. around what you're trying to stop it, yes. if at all possible. Um, and if it, they, somebody does become homeless, well, what are the options? But also uh, much more open about this information and where to go for advice. Yeah. And there is support available as well. So as you've said, shelter mm -hmm. um, can give free advice to people and they're open 365 days a year. So they don't even take Christmas off. <laughs> they're always there. Um, and legal, um, legal aid is also available in this area and can be looked at in terms of defending against eviction for somebody or challenging um, a local authority's decision. So if the decision is to that you're intentionally homeless, for example, um, you, that you could potentially get legal advice to challenge those decisions or any other decision on the local authority's behalf. Um, and also legal aid about establishing rights to the family home um, if a person has experienced domestic violence and who do you have a right to stay in this property, who leaves the property, I suppose, if, uh, if there's domestic violence in this situation as well. So there's support out there for people and, I, and um, I think it's certainly worth um, shelter, for example, would talk to, if you were not sure, shelter certainly would talk to people and give advice. And be able to signpost yeah, you. Yeah. What I think we can surmise from this is it's, it's quite important from a preventative aspect, yeah. both in terms of health, social care, well-being and function to identify people at risk, yeah. as with everything, um, early on if we can and try to really engage with people to try and prevent things from becoming too much of a problem or if they are homeless um, already, um, being able to put them in touch with people that would be able to help work with them to to find a solution. Absolutely, and like you said, spend time and build trust, and yeah. hopefully, then um, somebody might be a bit more open about what's going on around this situation for them. Particularly, I suppose, if you're trying to prevent something from happening, what's what's going on? Why why do you why does this person believe that it's likely that they might be made homeless what are the what's the situation surrounding that yeah so that's it for this episode um as ever we will create show notes for this which you'll be able to find on our website at www.hearingaidpodcasts.org.uk we will have a healthy MDT club chat on twitter i'm sure around this and share some of the resources from this episode as well just a reminder that on the website we've got a CPD log that you can use for your appraisals and revalidation. Copies of the infographic, if you want to share them with people, please feel free to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast or at facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. I had to remember all of that. <laughs> <laughs> with the end not here. <laughs> the MDT podcast. Okay, so 
now it's time for the new game and because Ian's here I've forgotten what we called it (laughs) Um, which is very much like a Radio 4 show where there is no hesitation deviation or repetition and the topic is going to be chosen by Jackie (laughs) so we thought we might we might think about because we talk about it quite a lot so we wondered whether we should talk about uh, the interface between health and social care which we both have (laughs) so I have to not offend the social worker and And I don't have to to offend (laughs) it so no repetition hesitation deviation or or obnoxiousness (laughs) (laughs) okay so there's there's a bell so how long is this for a minute no, so we have to time a minute. So that is, if I'm talking and you think I've hesitated, deviated, whatever, okay, then you, then I you have ding to hit the, bell. the bell. And what's the interruption bit? No, there's no interruption. Oh, I just have to ding the bell. Ding the so bell you if ding you've the hesitated. Bell. Or... Yeah. So the idea is that whoever whoever finishes the minute wins. I think we should go with holidays. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to let you start with this one. Okay. So uh, I think it's important that we think about the relationship between health and social care. I think it's quite interesting that it always appears to be something new. But if you look back over the uh, papers or government directives, the idea of collaborative working has been around since... 70s, 80s, and I think it comes back round, doesn't it, all the time to say that this is that we should be working this way. And I suppose the difficulties are about why doesn't that happen? Which, if you look at the research, there's numerous reasons that people will say why health and social care. Ah, health and social care. <laughs> that's technically three words. <laughs> Forty-four seconds though. Oh, you did well. That. You got quite far. <laughs> Okay, so let me plan my last 15 seconds of victory. Okay, I get to start again as well, so I I can ignore your words. Okay. So working in both hospital and community settings, that collaboration between the two services is really important and really valuable. Definitely something I've learned a lot from doing this podcast is about what I can expect from my social work team in both of those settings. Ah. I should have hesitated earlier. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So that's it for us for this episode. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.